Welcome back to the Marvel Movie Minute, a daily podcast in which we assemble to explore the films of the Marvel Cinematic Universe one minute at a time. In this, our sixth season, we are looking at the Avengers. I'm Andy Nelson from the True Story FM Entertainment Podcast Network. And I'm Pete Wright. And today, beauty God! Beauty God! <laughs> today we are talking about Minute 121, which begins with Nat's tuck and roll landing and ends with Eric's big reveal, almost... <laughs> Back on the show from a, a few weeks ago, we've got Lachlan Teal from the Quiet On Set podcast. Lachlan, hello. Hello, my friends. How are we doing? Oh, so good. Another week of uh, big moments happening in this movie, of course. Um, I, you know, I would ask you, why did you pick this particular minute? But I kind of have a, a sense that it's probably the, the puny god bit. The better question is, how were you first to pick your minutes? Because there's no way this <laughs> I one don't know. was just left. I have no idea when you guys said, go through this list, see what minutes you'd like. And I've picked, obviously, some good minutes earlier on, oh, yeah. some nice yeah, speeches, some, yeah. some gorgeous moments. I see this free and I'm like, hang yeah. on a second. How does this have <laughs> my favorite subtle joke, my favorite joke joke, and one of the darkest lines in the entire film? I'm just like, hang on a dibs. Yeah. I was like, this one, go, let's go. Get, let me take it before it like gets taken yeah. by somebody else. So yeah, it's, it's incredible. Unreal. Well, it's uh, going to be a fun one to talk about for sure. Uh, let's start at the very beginning of this minute, though. You know, we've We've just finished this race up from essentially ground level all the way to the top of Stark Tower. As uh, as Natasha, we're following her, we cut from minute 120 as she did her fantastic front flip off of the Chitari chariot. And now we come mid-move as she lands on the roof of Stark Tower, uh, just proving how incredibly gymnastic and uh, nimble she is, and how great she is at timing something like this when leaping off of a flying vehicle over a building 800 feet high. Whatever. That's still how I get into bed every <laughs> night, Andy. I don't know what you're supposed to be so impressed by. <laughs> the film decides to cut out like the three attempts she already did where she got caught, and they flew back around <laughs> yeah. to do the jump again. Yeah. Yeah. Right, right, right. And she does her uh, she does her hair flick, the uh, the good old uh -huh. Natasha Romanoff hair flick. You know, she has to do one of those in every single movie. Uh, there's not a single one. I don't think she does that. And then how incredible is it that she lands, does the hair flick, and then we also have the best, and this is my favorite subtle joke of the film, match cut to Loki doing the same hair flick. Spectacular. Oh man, it's so good. It's so the good. only the only thing that that disappoints me ever so slightly with that shot is that he does it so quickly the cameraman wasn't quite ready and yeah. like his head kind of gets chopped off as they kind of try to try to catch it and reframe it. But it is so funny and it's a perfect match cut too. It makes me laugh every time we cut from her to him and they both are flipping <laughs> oh, their gorgeous hair. I'm assuming so we're good. all in the same boat saying that Loki did it better this time, right? Because <laughs> yeah. it was definitely better. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Hiddleston's definitely got the move. Like, but you can yeah. tell it's practice. Do you know? You can tell he sat in his apartment, his house, his room, wherever they are, practicing this, and that gives me almost as much delight as seeing the final prog product. <laughs> How fun! I mean, I always laugh at stories about actors, um, spouses, or partners, like in the stories they had. Like this, the one I always go to 
is Mike Myers talking about how annoyed his wife was with him when he discovered his uh, Shrek voice and was walking around all the time practicing <laughs> that voice. And she was just like, for God's sakes, stop talking in that damn voice. And uh, but I, I think about moments like this, like, is is this something that, you know, Scarlett Johansson's, I don't know if she was uh, married at this particular point in time, but whoever she was with, whoever Tom Hiddleston was with, there was, there was this point where they're like, yeah, no, I'd give that a five out of ten. Nah, yeah. <laughs> All right. Okay, do it again. But this time, more roll. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> It's so funny. I just love watching this uh, this moment between them. Now, I do have a question. When uh, when Loki flips his head up and looks up, is he meant to be looking at her? Because, I, like, I don't know. My sense of the building is, like, the way that he landed, she would actually be behind him now. I don't know. Did either of you... Wh- what were you two thinking as far as his eyeline? Behind him or, lo- or, behind him or lo- at, le- at a very minimum lower than he is. Because she lands on, like, gravel. Like, it feels like she's... And he's on finished floor. Right, but she's at the tippity-tippity-top of the building. Like, way above him. Oh, yeah. I don't... I get the feeling that he's looking out, like, over the city. And she is... Then then she's got to be behind him. Because the slope is going up behind him. I'm not sure, right? I think that it's just for style points. I I think that he doesn't (laughs) care where he looks or who he's looking at as long as somebody sees. And in this case, it's actually Hulk, but he doesn't care. <laughs> but Hulk, Hulk doesn't care, yeah. Well, that's actually a really good question. Is that what he's supposed to be looking at? Like, he does his hair flip specifically for Hulk, not as a reaction to Natasha. This is like the, the uh, it, it's like a uh, handoff hair flip. She hair mm. flips to him. He f- hair flips to Hulk. Well, it could be. I, at first, I was thinking that, you know, he was pissed off at Clint because, you know, he had that exploding arrow that blew him up and had him land here, essentially. And so I thought, oh, maybe he's looking at Clint. But then if he were looking at Clint, he would be looking like way down, not kind of up and out. And I guess that's why it's a weird look to have. I mean, it is a great look. It captures the the hair and the move and everything well. And it's almost like a prep for, you know, Hulk. So I don't know. It's it's just one of those funky things. I th- or, or here's another thing. Like, I don't know if he knew actually that she jumped off of her chariot like did he know she was trying to get to the top maybe he's trying to find the chariot that she was on to see if she's still on it yeah right so this hair flip is just an homage hair flip because he doesn't even know where she (laughs) doesn't know she flipped her hair (laughs) right he's trying to preemptively do the hair flip (laughs) right (laughs) or maybe he thinks she's somewhere incapable of hair flipping and so he's doing it for her it's like a charity hair flip. Because he saw her fall off and she's yeah. doing, she's coming back around now to like do the, the actual yeah. land. So he's doing the right. flick for her. Right, yeah. right, right, right. No, right. this is the stupidest thing we've ever talked about on the show, I think, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm here for it, but. Yeah, yeah. Uh, again, this, the building here, I, I, I still, I mean, I'm sure we talked about this in, in the minute preceding this. We're recording these out of order but in minute 120 that is the point where uh clint spots her and loki flying down uh second or no 42nd uh street and sees them start angling up toward the top of uh stark tower his building again 414 feet that's where he is and he's pretty much looking straight when he sees them takes aim all of that sort of stuff the metlife building the real one is 808 feet high. Now, 
looking at Stark Tower as is when you compare the like the the views from the film with the views from reality the MetLife building and the Chrysler building they're like they're pretty comparable in both cases so I'm just going to assume Stark Tower is as tall as the MetLife building which means that they have to go up 400 feet in order to uh, be up here by the time the arrow hits and and blows him up and everything and it's you know it's one of these funky things that I suppose we just buy because it's a movie, but it was a 400 foot climb practically straight up that the two of them just did. So, <laughs> also, just something to remember. <laughs> they did fine. <laughs> they did fine. Yeah. Ah, good stuff. Well, as you, uh, as we've already pointed out, Hulk makes his appearance here. This is the, um, you know, last time we saw him. He had just punched Thor in the Grand Central Terminal after the death of that poor Leviathan that they caused. Uh, Lachlan, we have decided that the Leviathan are are merely the sea cows of the skies and uh, are being used and abused um, with uh, by the Chitari in this particular situation, and that they actually have no control over the decisions they're making. They're just being piloted. If you're asking me to sign some sort of petition, uh, I'm already on it. Let me. This yeah, is yeah, the yeah. Save, you, save, the le- save the Leviathan uh, <laughs> yes. advocacy yes. show. Right, is where we are. Right. Right. We've, <laughs> we've shifted direction. Yeah, dot org. Right. <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, so anyway, that was the last time we saw him, and uh, now I'm, I guess you know they were in Grand Central Terminal, which is directly below. So I guess it could make sense that he comes outside and sees Loki flying and decides, "Hey, I'm going to go up there and and beat him up." And uh, hence, here he is. I don't know what he'd been doing the last three minutes, just wandering aimlessly, but here he is up here, and uh, wow, just jumps right into Loki, and uh, and away we go with this particular pounding. Uh, I love the way you said that, uh, as if they were two distant lovers flying across <laughs> galaxies for this uh, meeting. Uh, how terrifying is that Hulk scream as he as he jumps up? It's just, man. And how long yeah. was he screaming for? From the floor, or was he only screaming yeah. from like, <laughs> like ten meters away? Him. Right <laughs> from the ground, he's been yeah. screaming. It echoes uh, tremendously. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, but this, 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 this part is incredible, right? Because you you see Hulk come out of nowhere. And it's it's him and Loki, right? It's the big, big bad, and it immediately lands into this this speech. And there's no music f- for this first few moments. Starts talking, and the music kicks in, and you're like, "Here we go. Here's the uh, the big bad speech at the end, of the, or during the fight." And he's and he's starting quite strong, you know. Enough. I mean, I think they cut some audio in between because I think it goes enough. You are all of you beneath me. Right. It doesn't sound right unless he's just tired and, you know, English is his second language because he's obviously from Asgard and Asgardians have their own. So, you know, he could just be messing up his big speech that he's been prepping. But <laughs> Knowing they love talking in kind of this this pretend, like, uh, uh, old English style that is just, it all feels very screenwriterly. Like, none of it really feels like they're pulling directly from Shakespeare or anything. It just, it's kind of like what they think that it should sound like. And so, yeah, you get things like that. You are all of you beneath me. And it's like, yeah, I guess that could be how you'd say it then. Yeah. (laughs) When you think about it too long. 
it does, of course, give us the in- entree into another one. If it's not the peak Tignataro writing minute, it is certainly in canon as one of the the uh, many that we've talked about in this show. This is about as Joss Whedon as you could possibly get in terms of the the vibe and sense of humor and the kind of thing you would expect from from that pen uh, is this almost literal rug pull on Loki uh, in this conversation. And I just like it's one of those things that I am as superficial as they come. And I hate myself for loving this minute as much as I do. It is so fun and funny. And I remember the first time I saw it in the theater and I was like, it's one of those like kind of I'm edge of my seat laughing so hard um, kind of a minute because it's it is an exhilarating minute to see these characters do this thing, particularly Hulk. Of course, it's filled with great complex feelings because Hulk saying puny God leans even more heavily in on the fact that Hulk is transforming into this sentient creature that I don't love as much as crazy risky creature that we've talked about for a hundred <laughs> minutes in a row. It's still, it's so fantastic that I'm, I'm willing to give it a pass. Lachlan, do you remember the first time you saw the Avengers in the theaters? Do you remember this moment? Did it, uh, did it hit you, uh, as, as strongly as it did Pete? Yeah, I I do. I remember going to see this small independent film, The Avengers, back in 2012, (laughs) not deciding to go, oh, should I go see that new Spider-Man movie or should I go see Avengers? And I was like, oh, I'll go see see Avengers. Yeah, Yeah, I've already seen Spider-Man. I know that's going to be a big film, but I don't know about this one. Uh, And and yeah, you know, I, I guess I don't really have much of a memory of villains getting this treatment, right? If this is the big bad and they're just going to then bring him down to a joke level, I thought, no one's safe, right? Mm -hmm. No one is safe in this universe to just be this big evil and then get the piss taken out of them. So I I do remember it just bang, bang, bang. The whole audience erupts. It's so funny. Everyone's laughing. I'm laughing. This is like the best joke. And I don't think if this joke was in here, I feel like the MCU humor would be just a little bit different. It wouldn't be at any moment a joke can just appear, even in the most serious of moments. And I think that that's what this does. It just sets up this uh, cinematic universe of humor. (laughs) I like that. It's actually a really good question. Um, I am I'm curious your thoughts, both of you guys, on the influence that Tignataro's sense of humor had on the rest of of the movies that follow. Do you do you see ripples that it, in ways that Avengers defined the rest of these movies? Yeah. No, 100%. Without this humor, you I guess you have Iron Man's sort of ego humor, right? Where he's he's so confident that it's funny in some situations and he's always got a joke ready to go, but Avengers obviously has this I don't want to say slapstick, but uh, this this very uh, out of nowhere left field humor, right? It, at the end of a serious scene, joke. At the end of a, a big fight, joke. Uh, it, it's this sort of very formulaic roller coaster of action and humor, and it sort of starts to become more solidified as you go through the MCU. Yeah, I think that's 
probably where I'd land with it too. I mean, it definitely is something that runs strongly through the Iron Man films. And I mean, I suppose to a certain extent, you're getting that in some of the other films, but I feel like it really starts becoming more refined here and something that you really see them tapping into as something they want to use as kind of their Marvel brand. I mean, we have essentially the exact same setup in Guardians of the Galaxy, where you have Ronan as he's doing his big speech, and then suddenly you have Star-Lord doing his dancing. It's like the exact same kind of uh, setup with this heavy moment that is kind of shifted into this comedic beat, very strangely, that is really funny and off-putting, and it, it it's something that kind of became part of the uh, the definition of what went into kind of making a film in the Marvel universe. And I, you know, I think that it works. And you know, I, I guess you could argue with different directors coming in, different writers, sometimes better than others. But I do think by the time you're getting here, it does feel like it's a little more fine-tuned. Yeah, and I, I think you, I think that's exactly right. Like the, you have the the Favreau. Thumb, thumbprint, right? Which is, I, I think, all over uh, the MCU to this day. You have the Tignataro thumbprint that is is very much sort of responsible for solidifying that roller coaster of action comedy. And I think James Gunn, uh, you know, was the next sort of uh, major influence, like because we had so many of those movies and they just became so bonkers, right? Like that added a next level of this bright and colorful vaudeville kind of of filmmaking uh to the mcu but i think it i i just i feel like these are the directors that made these these sort of indelible marks on the mcu and everybody else is still sort of playing in the playground the, I, i'd say the russo brothers also but i don't know if they're oh God, of course yeah, yeah the russo brothers yeah uh, but what's interesting about the Russo brothers is and we've we've had this argument before on the saturday matinee like the the russo brothers were great for what they did in the mcu and Almost everything else that they've done or produced has not been as good, like by a significant margin. And uh, and so I I look at those movies and I see those first and foremost as MCU movies and secondarily Russo Brothers movies. I see these others as sort of directorial marks and 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 sort of screenwriter marks. Sure. The question now raises as well. You obviously talk about all of these thumbs coming in and all of these styles coming in. So many thumbs. (laughs) Now we've gotten to 20, 30 plus films. All of these new directors have come in. Are there too many thumbs in the MCU? Is it feel a bit too much? They're stealing from different people and it's just this weird roller coaster of formula now, right? Like, why is it all of a sudden getting extremely dark like it does in and I, well, they try to do in Thor: The Dark World and Civil War, like these really dark themes, and then they try to do these James Gunn comedy parts, and then it's still got to be, you know, the original Avengers, fun, lighthearted, and you know, is there too much in there now? And is that where the MCU has kind of fallen off in the past few movies? Are they trying to go too much formula? I definitely think the formula thing is part of it. I don't know if the directors end up being as much a part of that. Uh, I think maybe to a certain extent, but largely, I think, because there is so much Kevin Feige as kind of the the MCU overlord who's really kind of like dictating what everybody's doing and how they're structuring it and everything and and bringing in some of these smaller directors who don't necessarily even understand how to shoot some of these big action sequences and really are relying on their second unit directors and those teams to kind of build it all. And then again, Kevin Feige to kind of 
guide them along, quote, guide them along, but really kind of probably in a little bit of more of a dictatorial fashion. And and I think that when you get the James Guns, uh, Taika Waititi's, those sorts of people coming along, they have a little bit more of their directorial stamp. But I still think that largely it still is very much the Kevin Feige mold that everybody's trying to fit into. And I think, I don't know, what I see as the the kind of the issue that really ended when uh, phase three ended is that they've, you know, they kind of told this grand story that they'd been building. And I just feel like they didn't really have a good set of, of stories structured that could work separately and then also together. Like nothing that they've done since Endgame and then I guess the the denouement with Spider-Man has felt connected as, I mean, they're all connected in kind of like little overbearing ways at times, but nothing feels as like it's building to something definitive. And that's the weirdest thing like you get all these stories and it's just like, I don't know how Eternals really connects to anything, you know, and it's just, it kind of becomes this big amalgam mess and of this multiverse. And I just, I just don't think, uh, I don't think it's working as well. So I think what you're saying is that the directors of the MCU are the space cows and Kevin Feige <laughs> yes! is the one with the whip. <laughs> so <laughs> the spacecows.org, sign your petition, uh, help oh save God. these directors. <laughs> save the spacecows.org. Save the space cows. Find us there. That's right. <laughs> So a, a couple a couple other questions that come up with this moment uh, between Hulk and Loki. First, there's there's this directorial tool that is used at times that some directors use, where if you can if you can't see something in the frame, it doesn't exist. Like the world of the viewer is kind of the world that the filmmakers are going to let you have, and then there are also other filmmakers who have the view of. If you don't see it in the frame, it doesn't mean it doesn't exist. It's out there, and it's just the camera is just not pointing at it at that particular moment. This is very much uh, the film. Several times now we've seen where if you can't see it in the frame, it doesn't exist. And this is a moment where Loki, um, he's yelling at Hulk, and suddenly he's pulled by his legs. Loki doesn't see Hulk's arm (laughs) reaching for him at all he's just staring and screaming at him but hulk has to be incredibly fast to like stick his arm low enough under the frame to like grab him by his legs and pull and loki doesn't see him or react in any way and i think that this is one of those uh uh, just another example and it's just i don't know i don't think there's anything wrong either way uh, depending on how directors do it. Spielberg is very much, uh, I, I won't say always, but often is one of these, if it's if it's not in the frame, it doesn't exist sort of filmmakers. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lachlan, is this something that you notice in films? And is this something that you read one way or the other? I like to think that directors flow in between. I don't think they're always one or the other. Uh, some definitely try to stick to what one particular technique, but in this case obviously it breaks a little bit because either as you said hulk is very quick and you know runs across the room or he's sort of just like hovering over the 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 camera operator and the boom operator and just trying to like contort his body and he's just ready to grab loki's leg and just pulls him under the rug uh there's different ways of looking at it but i'd like to think that this one you know Hulk is there because you have that shot of him just before 
you know, he's sort of in the in the distance of Loki, but you never know how far away, which is why I think it's such a, a, a rug pull, because you never see a two-shot of them. You only see single, one of Loki, one of Hulk. You don't know the distance. Now we're picking into the the sort of the, the, the blocking of these characters. We don't know the, the space that they're in, and this is where this, this, this podcast is interesting because you have the minute to break down. You have to figure out where they are, how tall that building is, and you have to bring it into reality. Yeah. And what the other thing you don't see is that Hulk is a uh, close-up magic aficionado, and with his left hand, he's <laughs> just pulled a bouquet of distractions. <laughs> and so what Loki's looking at is the bouquet while Hulk pulls the rug. So As, as you just did on the show, so we don't pay attention to this question. Yeah, anymore. yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Such a beautiful bouquet. Do you see what happened there? I'm so glad. Uh, okay, now here's another question. This is something that um, that you brought up, Lachlan. The idea of our villain and how, in this particular case, like the real the the air is really taken out of our villain, like literally in this particular point. Loki had been kind of our our primary antagonist over the course of the film, and this is kind of the end of that. Although we still have obviously the Chitari army outside and the hole still open in the sky. Is there a a sense of shift of antagonist in the film going from, okay, he's been kind of defeated. Does it diminish Loki in any way by doing it this way? And is there a sense that, uh, you know, we're meant to really, you know, have a bigger um, appreciation for this kind of this generic Chitari army and what they're doing? I don't know if it's to the shift the focus because there's a massive hole in the sky and they've, they've been trying to bring attention to it, but also Loki is doing some evil stuff. And, and that's more interesting, right? To have a character to, to lock onto. I mean, the whole conversation of is the big old hole in the sky technique overdone in these movies because Every time there's a big fight, there's a big hole in the sky and you have to shut that down. So, uh, yeah, I, I just think that if they don't put down Loki, it would have been a bit messy to have the whole team separated to go fight Loki. Half of you fight Loki, half of you take down the, the hole in the sky because that's sort of important because that's about to expand the entire universe because uh, there's a big old universe out there and, you know, that's... You, you can't just do everything at once. So taking down Loki, yes, brings him down a level. Maybe they knew they were going to bring him from the evil villain status into this anti-hero, sort of a hero status and move him into the MCU that way. And then go focus on a Tesseract hole in the sky. Yeah, I think that's a really, I, I think that's a really interesting um shift that happens and i think you're i think you're right lachlan like ultimately to me this is the obvious compression sleeve around the third act of the story right we have to start shutting down the the these elements one at a time i think the question becomes for me is shutting down loki before shutting the giant hole in the sky uh does that diminish the end of the movie and the battle of the uh, against the Chitari or diminish the, uh, Loki's presence in the movie because it's really this choice to make Loki a joke that transforms our perception of Loki for the rest of the MCU right it's what makes him ultimately be able to make the transition to likable down the road because he was beaten in a joke and uh, and, and I think that 
is there, there's a lot of weight and sort of responsibility to to that character ultimately. And I recognizing they probably didn't know what they were going to do with Loki at the time they made this movie. But it also, this sequence opens up the opportunity to do things they didn't expect to do with Loki. So, I, you know, I, to me, it's, it's, uh, uh, it was opportunistic. It didn't necessarily, you know, break the end of the movie for me, but I do think they took our big bad and they made him comic fodder. And I, I don't necessarily, you know, I didn't, certainly didn't think about it at the time, but I don't feel very strongly that they did his, evilness service by by playing him out that way. How about that? Here's an interesting one then. Would you rather them kill him off like they do with so many villains and then end the story? Because I, I think that having him comedic, have a com- comedic ending and have him live on just allows him to come back, whether it be good or bad. But some of these other films, you know, dead. No way they're coming back. And it's like, but I'd like just a little bit more, right? Just a little bit more. Well, and I guess that's what I'm saying. But with uh, opportunistic, right? It gives them choices, especially because they had to have known at least at a very minimum how charismatic Tom Hiddleston is at portraying this character. Like, they have to have seen that coming while making this movie and thought maybe someday we can do something. That's just what it, it that's the feel I get. And I'm sure I'm retconning some of that, but. Uh, well, I mean, it's, it's, I mean, it's his second opportunity to be the villain right. of a film. So obviously they already had kind of decided that and presumably yes, already were thinking of, you know, how they were going to involve him in Thor of the Dark World. So I, I have a feeling they probably already had that sense with him as a performer. But, uh, you know, to your point, Lachlan, I always prefer it when they're able to find a way to keep the villain alive because, one, it happens all the time in the comic books. Like, you never kill villains off. They're always back. And, two, I just, I think it makes for a more interesting ending when you have to figure out a way to keep them alive, catch them. You know, I just, I, I think that it allows for something a little more interesting to to be, allow for resolution. Well, and it does give us something that we'll see in a few minutes, which is his the the literal comic frame ending to Loki's story in the Avengers with all the Avengers over him, which is, uh, you know, that is delightful comic homage right there. I mean, that's stripped from the pages of the book. It is one of those things, Pete, to your point. I do think as the villain, the primary driving force villain of our story, it does seem strange that he ends up being defeated before the Chitari. And, you know, it does kind of take that uh, kind of the, uh, I don't know, weirdly, I always find that the end of the film from this point, it kind of, it always finds, I find it a little flat. And I just wonder if that's part of the reason. Like, it's like if in Thor, if, Thor had somehow gone back to Asgard to defeat Loki on the on the Bifrost before coming back to uh to uh, to Midgard to defeat the destroyer. Like it just it's it's kind of like it's a little bit backwards or a video game where you defeat the main villain before you you know defeat the one of his uh, uh minions. So it's there is something odd about it as far as the structure um but it does allow for a really funny moment and that's what i think it's just it's it's hard to pass up because they made it so so funny so funny well and and to that point you know i mean maybe it's that that that's the ultimate sleight of hand of this movie because once loki is is ridiculed as a joke it does allow us a little bit of a change of attention to maybe there's something more to who they're fighting after all. And that is 
where we need to go with our attention anyway, that there is a bigger bad uh, uh, over Loki. And and so, you know, insofar as we're looking at the microcosm of the Loki relationship, is there room to grant that maybe there the, the Chitari, if you change the perspective and think like, oh, Thanos is also up there somewhere, um, you know, does that allow you to see the movie maybe as less flat or maybe as part of a larger, less flat arc? Well, okay, so here's, I mean, there was that deleted scene right before this, right before Loki attacks Natasha, when he goes back into communication with the other, again, as a connection to somebody else that he is kind of answering to, right? And yeah. and it's like that sense of, uh, and, you know, whatever the conversation was, the point is, that was that moment that was kind of tying him into there is still somebody above you. And yeah, I do wonder, I, I, I don't know if that scene necessarily carried the weight that it would have needed to in order. Like, I think that because of the the way that they really have latched onto by this point with just six films of saving things for those mid credits and post credit sequences, uh, you know, that's something that they really want to emphasize as being important and having something at the end of this that that does kind of reveal the Thanos moment. Yeah. The fact that they're saving that, I wonder if that does end up kind of, you know, making it less powerful because we're saving it. Yeah. Oh, well. Curiouser and curiouser. The last note here is just how much can an Asgardian take? Like, <laughs> these people. Like, so much. I, I mean, I just always go back to their battle on Jotunheim in Thor, and I mean, three of them at least had to go to the healing room when they got back to Asgard because of the injuries that they sustained and everything. And and so I know they can be hurt, but this is Hulk who's smashing him like <laughs> repeatedly, like a ragdoll into the floor. And while his little wheezy breath makes me laugh to no end. It is one of those things that where I'm like later, just moments later in the film, he's going to be like walking through the yeah, uh, the right. building with them. And I'm like, maybe on a stretcher. But <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That, that little wheezing uh, wheeze of comedy. It, it just sounds like a wheeze of pain. Like it's if you just if you just take away the joke, right, of Hulk and cut to him in sort of embedded in the floor as if you didn't know Hulk was there, you'd probably want to call for medical support. <laughs> it's a yeah, it's ugly. a triple joke. It's the it's the physical comedy of smashing him down. Mm -hmm. It's the Hulk puny god, which the word puny in itself is just a great word, right? It's a you, funny you, word. You say yeah. it with your face. Your nose screws up and Hulk <laughs> does the same thing, you know, puny god. And then you have that little wheeze. So you have a bit of comedy from them together individually as well. It's, it's, it's a nice little joke. Obviously, we spoke about how the joke might not be the best option for the film, but the joke itself it's is a good joke. very good. Yeah. It's great. Yeah, it is. It's just, it's very funny. It really kind of allows for this whole beat, this whole battle with Loki to kind of come to an end in this moment of pain as Hulk walks off. And that takes us back to the roof as we're now back with Nat, who has survived her tuck and roll. She is up there and she's looking at this uh, machine that Eric has built and realizes that Eric is there too. And, and he's kind of giving her this clue that the scepter uh, is the thing that perhaps they need to actually... Um, fix things. And because, as he says, the Tesseract can't fight, you can't protect against yourself. <laughs> what? What are those lines? 
one of those lines. Um, yeah, I mean, so this whole we're setting up kind of the the end of the film, the closing of this uh, portal. Uh, what do you think of kind of this setup the, that we're getting here? We, obviously, we don't quite get to reveal exactly what Eric's talking about when he says, "I, I think I did." As far as I knew what I was doing, um, there's going to be a reveal that we'll talk about in tomorrow's minute, but. As far as kind of this setup of Nat going up here and, and trying to figure out how to close this, I mean, does this work for you, Lachlan, the way that we're jumping into this section here? Again, I'm, uh, I've said this multiple times in different places. I'm a show-don't-tell kind of guy. Like, show me the, the, the clue, don't tell me it. And even if you're telling me it and he's, like, hallucinating out of his you know mind magic that he's been put under for a while, don't, don't tell me, like, directly scepter tesseract end that's basically what he's saying right uh yeah i i just wish it wasn't like that i don't know how i would like them to show me this is the part that i it's probably the easier way of just saying go there collect this end the portal in the sky but yeah it's probably the quickest way to save time you know the movie's over in our eyes right the bad is is, is dead. So we need to quickly move on to the next bad. Don't waste time you know, showing them how to end it. Tell them. Yeah, I think that's part of the issue is it does feel so written through all of this. It feels it feels like a, a cutscene from a video game to like just explain what you have to do in your next scene, right? <laughs> it's like you gotta you gotta get down there and get the scepter and then you gotta put it in here and and we'll shut the whole thing down. I just don't understand though. Like even if you if you give them the grace of saying, I don't I, like we know we we're doing some exposition dump. Even the exposition dump doesn't make any sense. That line, you guys, Loki <laughs> Scepter, the energy, the Tesseract can't fight. They're doing a piss poor job of exposition dumping on us. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe that was their trick. They're trying to make it really confusing exposition. So, so that, that it doesn't we don't sound realize. like exposition anymore. Exactly. <laughs> it's, just, it's just confusing us. There was a guy behind the camera with cue cards to, to Skellen, and he was, like, flicking between the cards, and Skellen's yeah. going, the scepter, the energy, Tesseract can't fight. Right. That's it. Yeah, that's what happened in this scene. It wasn't actually scripted. It was some guy oh. writing it live. Oh, my gosh, that's hilarious. God, it's just so bad. Yeah. I, you know, I suppose that uh, considering where we're going with uh, uh, Eric in the future films, I suppose there could be some element of looking at this like his brain is already pretty scrambled, like he yeah. can't mm. even really get a sentence out. Uh, I just, I don't think that they're setting that up. Like, it really doesn't seem like they're trying to, but that would have been the only thing that I could have think, could that I could think might have actually made this work in a better way, where we see just how scrambled Eric is, and he's trying to actually get something out, but can't. Like, then, then it could have been a little bit more of an interesting scene. But as you said, Lachlan, we are at this point where our villain is down and the story just, we just need to get this thing closed now. So I think they're probably just trying to take as many shortcuts as they can from this point forward, just to get us to that point where Tony's, you know, chasing the nuke up there. Nat could fix it too. Her next line, it's not your fault. Doctor, you don't know what you're saying. Instead, she says you didn't know what you were doing. Just have her call him crazy. That's all I want is somebody in this damn movie to call Selvig nuts. 
And I can't help but wish that there was still this moment of Selvig on the roof having that kind of the crazy uh, Warhol uh, day glow moment. <laughs> he didn't get where, this day glow yeah, moment. He didn't get just like Clint did. Like, why not? He should have been up here like fighting the the spell that he'd been under all this time. Oh, man, he should have been in Sergeant Pepper's like he should have been absolutely <laughs> nuts given how long he was he was under. Yep. Yep. All right. Well, it has been a great minute. Uh, any last uh, thoughts from you, Lachlan, on this, or really the film, because this is our last chance to chat with you about it. Aww. Eric's last line. Uh, it's terrifying in a way. I say this is the darkest moment, even though it's through a bunch of mumbo-jumbo coming out of his voice. He does say, actually, I think I did. Right? How dark is that? This entire time, he knew what he was doing. He knew that he was doing something bad, but he was doing it for science, and maybe that's the villain of the film science that's i mean and that's what pete and i have been talking about this whole time like maybe this is why he doesn't go through that whole pop art warhol thing because he really would like if it hadn't if loki hadn't uh taken control of his mind he might have just been going along with all this anyway because he was so fascinated with the tesseract he loves the science and the opportunity to to kind of explore it this way might have been right up his alley and we've talked about like eric seems like a perfect setup for a really interesting villain at some point. It's just they've never yeah. used him in that way. But I really think that there is something interesting with his, like, as you said, this line, there's something dark in there. I think that yeah. that would be fun to explore. Instead, he went on a, a trip and never recovered because he went crazy and never recovered the character arc that could have been. But who knows, in an alternative multiverse, we might get him back (laughs) uh, because we have that expansive universe now in the MCU. So, yeah, I guess guess to to what you said earlier uh, about this film, it's this this movie is very important. This movie, without it, there's no MCU. If this film flopped... I'm sorry, Kevin Feige's on the streets. He 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 wouldn't be the shepherd of the the space cows that he is now. Uh, <laughs> this 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 film is uh, it, it's even though I don't think it's aged very well in comparison to some of the other earlier MCU films. I think there are some things to this film that didn't make it to this rewatch that I did for this recording, and I go, ooh, it's not that great. But without this film, there's no MCU. Truth. I think that pretty much sums it up in a very succinct way. So, well, Lachlan, we have had a fantastic time talking with you today and uh, over the course of the season. Thank you so much for joining us here. No, thank you guys for having me. Uh, I love what you guys do here. I love speaking about Marvel. It's such an exciting topic. (laughs) Tell everybody. We appreciate you. Absolutely. Tell everybody again about your podcast where people can tune in. Yes, I, I'm on the Quiet On Set podcast. We speak about the latest coming out in the movie scene, uh, whether that be Marvel, whether that be the latest A24 film, which may be a collaboration eventually in the future. Marvel A24, the most interesting art oh house uh, <laughs> studio power. That would be incredible, right? Uh, but you can listen to us. I think Ari Aster is on deck, I'm sure. Oh, yeah, yeah. for sure, right? Can you imagine the <laughs> yeah. trip that would be, eh? Uh, <laughs> I'm a director. I love it in Marvel. <laughs> uh, but we're on pretty much any podcast podcast platform and on youtube as well you can catch us anywhere there fantastic we'll have the links in the show notes check those out everybody and uh, we certainly appreciate it uh, that you've been joining us all this time lachlan we will be back tomorrow uh we will have actually uh lester clark and keenan diaz back in the house to talk about minute 122 so uh thanks everybody and pete thanks as always 
tomorrow, Andy, you get to see what Iron Man and I have in common. Weaponized thighs. (laughs) Until next time, true believers. Marvel Movie Minute is a production of True Story FM, engineering by Andy Nelson. This season's music is Message to the World by Anthony Vega, and this season's show art is by Winston Yabo. Find the show at truestory.fm. If your podcast app allows ratings and reviews, please consider doing that for our show. <laughs>